Dear friends, let's look to Luke chapter 9. We're walking through verses 18 and through 22 this morning. This is an absolutely incredible passage that we're walking through this morning. Let's go ahead and read uh, that passage. Luke writes, beginning in verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. Now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others said, Elijah, and others, the one that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. We have a question that is asked, two questions actually, that are asked within this passage. The question that is asked here is the most important question that can ever be asked. This is a question that depending on your answer, depending on not just, of course, what you say, but what you believe, will determine where you spend eternity. It's a crucial and necessary question that each and every one of us must come to grips with. It is a question that must not be answered in a casual way without consideration regarding what it is that you are confessing, what it is that you are professing. In your declaration, when we walk through the passage after this one, Jesus will unpack what it means to make such a profession, what it means to confess Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, as the one that you are trusting and whereby you can be saved. But the question we have before us right now is the question, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus. If you say Jesus Christ, you are making a declaration about who he is. I was, I was interested to realize that the New York Times no longer writes of Jesus as Jesus Christ because they felt they were making a declaration regarding who he is in that respect. And actually, you are. I would imagine, though, they write the prophet Muhammad and they're making a declaration of who he is at that time as well. Perhaps they don't realize that reality, but everyone has an opinion about Jesus. I want you to see this reality. Each and every world religion, at least the ones that I looked at over this last week, they have an opinion about Jesus. So there's two questions that we have before us that we will seek to answer as we walk through this passage. The first question is, what does the world say of Jesus? And believe it or not, the world has many opinions of Jesus. The world desires to claim Jesus for themselves. The world desires to take Jesus and form him, to make an idol out of him, that he would reflect their image. That's what we do in idolatry. Do you not realize that? That God has made man in the image of God, that man would rightly bear God's image. But man in idolatry will go and seek to make God in his own image. It is like what 
Many have said before that we become what we worship, and the more you begin to walk down that pathway of idolatry, the more and more you dehumanize yourself and others. But what does the world say of Jesus? That will be the first question we answer. The second is, what does the church say of Jesus? And what the church must say of Jesus is very particular. What the church must say of Jesus goes beyond the many compliments that the world will give of Jesus. What the church says of Jesus far extends beyond anything the world says about Jesus. Even when the world gets as close as it possibly can to speaking of Jesus, but not quite speaking the truth, it is insufficient. The church confesses Christ rightly. The church confesses Jesus as the Messiah who was to come, the Messiah who has come and who has defeated sin and death. Let's look at that first question there. What does the world say of Jesus? And we see this in verses 18 and 19 of Luke chapter 9, at least the world here within this little area of first century Palestine. It says, now it happened as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, the one of the prophets of old, who has risen. Who do the crowd say that I am? John the Baptist? Elijah? A prophet of old that has risen from the dead? These are very significant declarations. These are no small compliments that they are giving to Jesus. These are not people that, that hate Jesus. These are, Jesus. these are people who are wanting to speak highly of Jesus. John the Baptist, he was revered by the people. Many flocked out to see him. Many thousands of people were going out into the wilderness to be baptized by John to sit under his preaching. Herod, the king, the tetrarch in this area, the one that was ruling in this area, the one who had the right legally under Roman rule to put people to death or to give them clemency, to, to remove any sentence that was placed against them. He was fearful of John, fearful because the people loved and respected John. Jesus even said he was the greatest man who had ever lived up until that point. It's a no small compliment to call someone John the Baptist or to say that he was raised from the dead. That was Herod's fear, was it not? Just a couple passages back. Elijah? That's no small compliment to call someone Elijah, the, the great prophet of old that stood up to the prophets of Baal, the one who did many great miracles. It's no small compliment. Oh, another prophet. These are prophets of old that were respected, that were revered, that were there within the scriptures, that were read. Now, true, many of the people that were in leadership at that time, many of the people who were in the community at that time would have put those prophets to death if they were there amongst them. But they still respected the idea of these prophets. These are great titles. Great compliments by the crowds being given to Jesus, people that were following Jesus, people that were listening to Jesus. Just remember, these people that followed Jesus didn't necessarily have faith in Christ. We see John interacting with that. 
He talks of those that believed in Jesus at one point that are then trying to stone him at another point. We must not read a passage like that and say, oh, well, they, they had faith in Jesus Christ. They had a saving faith in Jesus Christ. No. No, they had a profession of faith in Christ, but it wasn't within their heart because they were trying to stone him. That's not what you do with your Messiah. You don't try to kill him. You worship him and you serve him. And these compliments that the crowds give, that the Jewish leaders even will give to him, fall short. They fall short of who he actually is. Now imagine this. Imagine if you could use a word like this, and maybe a child is jumping around. You may say, okay, you're being a monkey, and the child would think that is funny and that is cute. But if I were talking to one of you, and I directly told you that, that, that you were a monkey, you would be offended by that. Most likely, I would imagine, or you might say, okay, what, what's going on here? Why are you calling me names? But you can look at monkeys, you can look at primates, and you can see that they, as far as animals go, there's a lot of things they can do. They can climb, they can jump, they can figure things out, they can sort of use tools. Somehow we get amazed by that. The monkey grabs a rock and Smack something open. It's like, oh, he can use a tool. Yeah, he's not using a skill saw, but he certainly he can he can bang something. He can open something up, and these are these are things that the animals can do. But you would be offended for me to call you that because that is well far below what you are as far as your intelligence, as far as your worth, as far as your your being. It doesn't matter how great it is even a monkey. Well, actually, it was it was a gorilla that was taught sign language. This gorilla's name was Coco. I was fascinated by this. Coco is, is long deceased at this point, but it was this gorilla that was taught sign language, and they had many conversations with this, this gorilla. I was fascinated by that story as a child. But even at that, that gorilla is merely mimicking what the people are doing. That gorilla has no ability to create their own sign language or their own language as a whole. These are animals that are far below what humans are. And in the same way, it is an offense to give Christ a compliment that falls below what he actually is. Though in your mind it might be a compliment. Though in your mind you feel that you're speaking so highly of Jesus. In fact, you're degrading him. You're speaking less of him than he actually is. This is what I want you to, to see as we walk through this last portion of this point here. And that is that the world is full of religions that speak very, very highly of Jesus. Very highly of Jesus. But they fall woefully short. This is what I found as I walked through a study this week. I, I asked myself this question. I, I was reading through this first point. I was pondering this first question. What does the world say of Jesus? And I asked myself, you know, I wonder what the religions of the world say of Jesus. Because I have a Cursory, I have basic understanding of what some of the religions say. I've interacted with people in many different religions, and how many times I will have Muslims that talk and say, oh, I love your Messiah. I love Jesus. There was a Muslim man that lived right behind me. There was a storm, and it kind of like we had recently, and our fence got knocked down, and so my dog was running across into his yard, and my kids could go and to his yard, and so I was working on getting this set up, and so I had to walk around and meet him and talk to him and tell him I'd be in his backyard fixing this fence, and he was a Muslim man. He was very hospitable, and one of the things he says, oh, I love your Messiah. Oh, I love Jesus. We call him Esau, and, and he began to give all these, these compliments, and I'm sitting there 
as I have a couple times now in, in a, with a Muslim in their house and I'm sitting there with a bowl of pistachios and a, and a, and a tea and, and I'm having to explain to this man who's being hospitable and kind to me in certain ways and, and, and praising the Lord that I serve and I'm having to explain to him, yeah, we don't have the same understanding here. We have different definitions of who Jesus is. And so your compliments and your praises here of Jesus are falling woefully short. This is what I found fascinating as I walked through this over the past week. Jesus is the only religious leader that I'm able to find that is claimed by almost every other religion. In some way, almost, you can probably find some that don't, but overwhelmingly, other religions seek to claim Jesus, seek to take a stake in Jesus in some way. Jesus is that influential in the world. I mean, honestly, the calendar was changed because he came into the world. It's not accurate, but it was changed on account of him. And people try to change what we call it, no longer saying before Christ, but rather before the common era. And it doesn't matter whether or not you do that. It's still changed because of Jesus. It is still there in the history. He was incredibly, incredibly influential. And this is what I think that is fascinating about it. Each and every one of them seek to recreate Jesus, kind of to go along with their religion in particular. But I don't find any other religions that, that speak this way. You don't find Hindus speaking positively about Joseph Smith. Um, you don't find Muslims seeking to claim Buddha for themselves. You don't see Mormons trying to claim L. Ron Hubbard as one of their own, even though, you know, as far as the imagination goes, they both had great imaginations. Um, borderline science fiction when you look at certain parts of Mormonism. But overwhelmingly, they all claim Jesus, except for Judaism. Certainly, Judaism does not claim Christ, does not recognize Christ. Some may give a, a nod or an assent that he was a, a good man in some way, but just misunderstood. But overwhelmingly, the Jews practicing Judaism do not accept Jesus in any way or try to stake a claim for him. This one, I want to walk through a few of these kind of in an application here or understanding what does the world say. We see what, what, what many of the people were saying about Jesus here in the first century in this passage. And I want you to see that what the world religions say about Jesus is very similar to what these people were saying about Jesus. There's nothing new under the sun. Everyone is trying to claim Jesus in, in one way or another. Even the Pharisee, as Jesus was going into his house, that Pharisee was sitting in judgment in him on him, rather, seeking to look at him and see, well, is he a good Pharisee? Is he a good rabbi? Is he going to keep our rules? Is he going to fast on Monday and Thursday like we do? They were seeking to claim Jesus for themselves, and Jesus was falling woefully short of their legalistic standard that was not a requirement of God, but they didn't see the fact that they were falling woefully short of God's righteous standard that is contained within his moral law Let's look at a few of these religions as we, as we walk through the remainder of this, this first point here and thinking through the question of what does the world say of Jesus. You can look at the religion of Islam, Surah 41 and 61. It says that Jesus is going to come back and to judge. They declare him to be one who worked miracles. 
They confess that Jesus was born of a virgin. They say that Jesus was sinless. These are incredible statements that are made by Muslims. These statements are not even made about the prophet Muhammad, whereby the Quran was brought forth from. They praise Jesus emphatically, as I said earlier. It's numerous times that I've been standing next to a Muslim, and they've been praising Jesus and speaking so highly of Jesus. And then you have the, well, but we, we don't think that he's God. We don't think that he died for sins. Uh, you have to explain to them, we're not speaking of the same Jesus. We're using the same word here. But the Jesus that Muhammad was talking about is not the Jesus that we have contained within the scriptures. We see them falling short here in Surah 575. It says, Christ, the son of Mary, was no more than a messenger. That's enough right there. He's nothing more than a prophet. You're falling woefully short of who he is. He wasn't merely a prophet. He was a prophet who was to come. He was the greater Moses who was to come. But to say that he was just a prophet brings them woefully short of who he actually is. Continuing, it says, many were the messengers that passed away before him. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both to eat their daily food, see how God makes the signs clear to them, yet see in what ways they are deluded away from the truth. And in talking about those that are claiming Christ to be fully God and fully man, a difficulty, and this is a stumbling block for the Muslims. There's a great many things about Jesus that are stumbling blocks for them and how they approach, but they still seek to claim. Mormons overwhelmingly claim Jesus. They will say many great things about him. Even nowadays, they will begin to say very positive and nice things about other Christians. You did not see that many decades ago. You will see them speak very kind and charitably toward Christians. They will even say that, well, you know, you're going to go to heaven. That is not what the Mormon prophets previously were saying. They will say that, well, Jesus is God. You're like, okay, well, that's good. We agree. You believe he's God. I believe that he's God. You believe that he was born. Okay, we're all in alignment here. Not even close. They'll then also say there's a God higher than him named Elohim, and there's a great many other gods besides Elohim. And in fact, you can become a God yourself. And some of them may deny that truth, but that is overwhelmingly communicated in the teaching of Mormonism. And then, oh, by the way, this Jesus that they're claiming to speak so highly of. He's also the brother of Lucifer. This is the most polytheistic religion in the world. The most polytheistic religion that has ever come into existence is Mormonism. There is a hymn that they have called, If You Could Hide to Kolob, and they say this, If You Could Hide to Kolob, and Kolob is this, this star with a planet, and that's where the God that made this world is living. They believe Elohim is there with his many, many wives. And he says this, if you could hide a kolob in the twinkling of an eye and then continue onward with the same speed to fly, do you think you could ever, through all eternity, find the generation where the gods began to be? And it is that last question that I press upon you there. Look at what they say. Find where the generation of gods began to be. They have so many gods. They believe there are so many gods in existence that it's overwhelming. You could never even imagine the massive amount of gods there are. 
And so Jesus is just one of these millions or billions of gods that are in existence that you could as well yourself if you went through the right steps, had the right rituals here on earth, lived the right way, become a god yourself. It's just one of these gods that spawned into existence. We can't even fathom how this even happened. Joseph Smith, Joseph Smith boasted that he was greater than Jesus. And he said this in one of his rants. This is in History of the Church, volume 6. He says, Come ye, ye prosecutors, ye false swears, all hell boil over. Ye burning mountains, roll down your lava. So he's basically cursing these people that are standing up against him or speaking against him. He says, For I will come out on top at last. I have more to boast of than, than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep the whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did such a work as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him, but the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. When they get rid of me, the devil will also go. What an incredible statement. You won't hear that from Mormons, but that was a declaration that Joseph Smith made. And here's Jesus. They speak so highly of him, but then they go and place, their leader places himself in superiority over Jesus. Their leader goes and declares that Jesus is a, a brother of Satan. No, this is woefully short woefully insufficient, not only in what they're saying of Jesus, but what they're saying about others that God has brought into existence. Jehovah's Witnesses, ones that are Arians, as you would understand it, those that believe that Jesus is a created being. They hold to that classical Arian heresy that Jesus was created first by God. He is the greatest being that God has ever created. I had some Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door the other day. I actually ran into some as I was taking some packages to the post office and I had a conversation there and I had some that knocked on my door and I was glad to, they knocked on my door. I haven't had any knock on my door in a while and my goodness, has this group changed over the years? I would say over the decades, it is incredible how much the changes in our culture have affected these cults that are, that are, that are seeking to convert Christians because most of them, you realize that, their, their, their package, their spiel, is basically just seeking to find and grab evangelical Christians or nominal Christians or, let's be honest, non-Christians that are in churches. And this, this woman had come up to, to my door and she, you know, kind of said, hey, you know, do you, do you ever desire community? And I was like, yes. You know, do, do you ever desire, you know, to, to be amongst other people and gathered with other people and have a place to network and connect? And I was like, well, yes, absolutely. Well, sure, those are all good things. She goes, oh, well, you should come to this meeting. And they hand me a flyer. And that was it. There was three of them that came to my door. That was all they, they hand me this flyer, come to this meeting, and that was the be-all and end-all. And I was kind of disappointed. I said, well, aren't you going to tell me something else? Aren't you, aren't you going to open up the Bible and read me something or talk to me about something? And she said, well, I can do that. What would you like me to read from the Bible? I mean, tell you something. 20 years ago, Jehovah's Witnesses would not have done that. I mean, that's basically just a softball, and you're just able to. And I said, oh, 
I would like to talk about John chapter 1 and verse 3. Can we talk about John chapter 1 and verse 3? And she said, sure. I love love talking about the scriptures. And John chapter 1 and verse 3 is one that the Jehovah's Witnesses did not get around to changing. And it's kind of a little too late for them to change it. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. And I said, okay. She said, yes, that's a great verse. I believe in that verse. It's such an important verse. I said, who is that verse talking about? And she said, Jesus. I said, yes, it is talking about Jesus. This is a very important passage right there about Jesus. He made, what did he make? She said, he made all things. I said, yes, that's what it says. John chapter 1, verse 3 says that Jesus made all things. And I said, did he make himself? And then I saw her feet begin to step away from my porch and begin to work her way. Her body language was trying to escape from my presence at that point. And she said, okay, no, 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 wait a second. You, you can't only read this one verse. I said, what does that verse say? Did he make himself? She said, no, of course not. That's ridiculous. I said, okay, so has he always existed? And she said, no, he hasn't always existed. He was made by God. That's not what that verse says. He says that he made all things, just like it says in Genesis 1 about God, that in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. He brought the creation into existence. And she said, well, I don't want to just take up all your time and stand around and, and argue with you, so I'll go ahead and let you be, but you're welcome to come to the meeting. And I knew that our conversation was over and I had to let it go, but perhaps I at least planted a seed that she could consider that verse and the ways in which it contradicts the other verses that they have distorted within the New World Translation, which is not, in fact, a, a translation. They believe that Jesus is the greatest being that God has made. I will say this about Jehovah's Witnesses. Of all of the world religions that exist, they are probably the ones that speak the highest of Jesus that falls short of what he actually is. They say that he is the archangel Michael. He was brought into existence by God. They speak of him as being the greatest, most noble creation that God has ever made, and then he's the one that made everything else. But it falls woefully short of who Jesus is. Regardless of how many compliments are given, it falls short because Jesus has always existed. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Just as it says in Genesis that in the beginning God made the heavens and the earth, and that is what John is communicating about Jesus. In John chapter 1, it's communicating the same thing. To make Jesus one who is just a mere creation is to set him below what he is. It is distorting who he is. It's to fall short. It's to not have a true profession of faith. Hinduism, that's interesting. Hinduism claims Jesus as well, not overwhelmingly. Missionaries have to be careful in speaking to Hindus because Hindus will accept Jesus. They will pray a sinner's prayer, some of them, not all of them. You can find Hindus that won't do that. But missionaries have to be careful of this because people will just, okay, sure. Then Jesus will be on the shelf with all of their other gods. See, the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. They call him Ishu. They believe he died, he was reincarnated, he was a god, tapped into the 
God consciousness. I found a, an article on this that says this. It was um, I don't know, Oxford professor, I think, is in the article. It says, some Hindus regard Jesus as an incarnation of the God Vishnu. According to Hindu mythology, Vishnu is periodically incarnated in the world in forms that vary as, this is incredible, as a fish, a dwarf, a human being, in order to preserve and sustain life and to sustain order on the earth. So he's coming as a human and also as as a fish. I don't know what he, what they think he's doing as a fish, but this is falling woefully short. To even call him a god is to put him in this, this pantheon, this polytheistic religion with all of these others. Others will say that he's the incarnation of, of Krishna, um, and, and but it falls woefully, woefully short. Deepak Chopra uh, you know, one, one Hindu, famous Hindu, he says, the Christ consciousness, the God consciousness, the Krishna consciousness, the Buddha consciousness, it's all the same thing. Rather than love, love thy neighbor, this consciousness says, you and I are the same beings. So he's spoken, Jesus has spoken so highly here, but then he's also put alongside all of these other false teachers, and then he's also put alongside you. Jesus is so great. All these false prophets are so great. And, oh, by the way, you are there as well, right along with them. This is, this is foolishness. This is dangerous. Scientology is one. I won't go into too much detail on this religion because it is really, really complicated. Um, but, you know, in talking to I was talked to a Scientologist the other day. We had uh, Janice and I were, um, were in California, and there was, I'm walking down Hollywood with Janice, and there's a Scientology store, so course, I'm going to walk in and talk to the person. And I attempted to try to have a conversation with this uh, woman that was there on, on religion. And she just continued to praise Christianity and to praise Jesus. Now, L. Ron Hubbard did not do that. But you see even there this idea that she was, she was trying to praise him. Um, what they are quoted at one point in saying that, you know, Buddha, Jesus, you know, they were basically a shade above clear. It was a level of Scientology. And so they're saying these things about Jesus, but then the founders and many of the members of this religion are actually higher than he ever, he ever attained. Buddhism is another one that seeks to claim Jesus, seeks to claim him within their religion. 14th century Zen master Gaston Joseki refers to Jesus as an enlightened man. The 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gaizatso, I'm sure I'm slaughtering these names, says this. He says, um, recognize Jesus as one who um, lived his life in a sacrificial way in betterment toward others. They have a very high title for such a person. They see him as a wise teacher. The current Dalai Lama declares Jesus as a, a holy man. But Buddhism overwhelmingly denies the tenets that Jesus had taught another religion, Baha'i. If there was ever a religion that the United Nations would take as the religion. I think Baha'i would be that religion. It was a 19th century Persian man, uh, Baha'i Ullah, and he founded the Baha'i religion. He basically claimed that all of the religions were from God, and God was speaking into the world through all these religions, and, well, he's the guy now who's really going to be the last prophet and pull all this stuff together for everyone else. And so he, he ends up producing a religion that contradicts all the religions that he is professing, um, and puts together something that doesn't look like these other religions at all. But he is one who, you know, as, as a whole, claimed Jesus, tried to claim Jesus for himself. It's interesting. They will claim the, 
divinity of Jesus, Jesus being the, the son of God, um, claim that Jesus came from God. One website says this, the Baha'i faith describes Jesus as a manifestation of God and acknowledges Jesus was sent by God. Um, however, again, he's placed beside all these other messengers of God, Buddha, Krishna, Zoroaster, Muhammad, each of these people. They go on to say this, the Baha'i faith also acknowledges Jesus spoke for God while he was here on earth. And in fact, the words of Jesus are considered to be the words of God. But they don't actually believe that because in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. None of these religions that I've mentioned so far accept that statement. None of these religions that we have mentioned so far recognize this reality that no one comes to the Father except through Jesus, except by grace and through faith in Jesus, because that's the other part that you need. You also need to recognize that it's only through Christ, and it's only because of Christ. It is Christ alone. No other religion, no other religious leader that I could find is claimed by all of the other religions. No other religious leader that I could find is somehow people are trying to work him into all of their older, all of their other systems. Who do the crowds say that I am? That's the question that he asks them. And the crowds speak highly of Jesus. They give Jesus many compliments. They speak praises towards him. But C.S. Lewis says it this way, and I don't think Anyone says it as well as C.S. Lewis does. He says this, he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be a devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something even worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense and say his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Although the world may speak so highly of Jesus, they fall woefully short in that respect. And he leaves no option. Jesus leaves no option in his teaching, his life, his death, and his resurrection. He leaves no, teach he leaves no opening merely to patronize him and to speak highly of him and not recognize that he is Lord and that he is God, that he is fully human and fully man. So the world may patronize Christ, seek to speak highly of Christ, seek to claim him for their own religion, seek to make him in their own image. The question here is what does the church say of Jesus. And let's look at verses 20 through 22 in Luke chapter 9. 
Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. When he is speaking of the Messiah here, we are speaking of the anointed one, the one who was anointed by God. You have three classes of people, according to D.A. Carson, that, are, that received an anointing in the Old Testament. You have prophets, priests, and kings. And Christ fulfills all of these respects, and we will see that as we walk through here and understand the totality of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. But Jesus is in what is called here his retirement ministry. It's called his retirement ministry, not because he's sitting back and taking it easy, but he is retiring from the major crowds and the major thoroughfares, the areas that have the largest populations at this time, because his ministry is beginning to wane in some ways. He is not fulfilling these messianic expectations in the world at this time that the leaders and the people in the various groups are desiring him to fulfill. As I said, these different world religions look at Jesus and they try to fashion him, try to mold him to fit alongside their worldview and their religion. Well, the people of this day were doing the same thing. The Pharisees wanted him to look a certain way. The Sadducees wanted him to look a certain way. The Essenes, the ones that are out there in the desert, would have wanted him to be a, a certain way. And so he offended each of these groups in the way in which he spoke and in the way in which he behaved. And so he's retiring at this time and preparing for the time where he is going to go forward. He's spending a lot of time specifically instructing his disciples at this time. The crowds are there. He's still working with them. But even as he's working with this crowd, you see him especially instructing his disciples during this time. And he says this in the passage I just read. He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, to tell no one that he was the Christ. That's a difficult passage. I, I struggled with passages like this where Jesus would tell people, don't say anything about it. Doesn't Jesus just want everyone to know this reality? And the fact is there were certain messianic expectations that were held during this time. And there was, there was debate during this time. Some believed that this Messiah or during this time of the messianic reign that a prophet of old would come back to life. And this prophet would come back to life and he would begin to speak to the people, a prophet that was raised from the dead. So John the Baptist being raised or even Elijah coming back, one who had been taken up. He was one that would make sense that he would come back as, as well. But the fact is that it's not just the fact that a prophet's coming back. Jesus in his coming forward has the, the totality of the prophetic declarations that are being made about the Messiah pointing to him, standing behind him. He is the, the fullness and the totality of all that was declared about the Messiah. All of the scriptures are pointing to him. That will be unpacked in many places. That is, in fact, the thesis, the idea that is being communicated in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is this one that was to come forward. He fulfills all these necessary expectations. Others believe that the Messiah would be 
a king. He would be, come out of a, the, the, the line of David. He would be a king that would sit upon the throne. He would make all things right. He would remove those that are oppressing the people of God. He's one who would sit upon the throne of David forever, as it is declared. 2 Samuel seven twelve and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you will lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. They had no king sitting on the throne at this point. Herod was not a sufficient king. No one was saying, well, Herod is the king that was to come. Herod is the one that's sitting upon the throne of Jared. No, Herod is the one who was selling out the people. So they didn't respect that, but they see these promises of a Messiah that will come forward and order things rightly and rule over the people that will be a king. We see Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. There's many other passages we could read that emphasizes kingly aspect of the Messiah. But others believe the Messiah would be a priest. There's reasons why they believe that. Zechariah in particular, in Zechariah 6, working through verses 9 through 14, is a place where people would go to see this reality. Let's start in verse 11. It says, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of, of Joshua, the son of Zehodidak, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build a temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear, bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And again, there you have the, the, the priestly aspect and the kingly aspect even within that passage. And so some began to walk off for this and they would say, well, there's going to be two messiahs because you can look at all these passages here. They talk about the fact that the Messiah is going to be a king. And you see these passages here. The Messiah is going to be a priest. And so, well, certainly there's going to be two Messiahs. But something that was missed by a great many that studied these scriptures and considered them was the fact that there would be a dying Messiah, that there would be a suffering servant, one who would speak truth and would die for his people in order to save them. And this is a reality. A great many of these groups that I mentioned will deny even the claim of Jesus in this respect that he is dying for the sins of his people. Muslims will claim to believe in Jesus, but they will dispute the account of the crucifixion. They will say he is taken up by God because they believe it was a shame for a prophet to be killed. It is a shame. It is wrong. It is terrible. Um, it is a, but the reality is, it's on account of our sin that this happened. He took upon himself the fullness of our sin. But this is what Muhammad wrote in Surah 4, 157-58. It says, And for their saying, Indeed, we have killed the Messiah, Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah. And they did not kill him, nor did they crucify him. But another was made to resemble him to them. And indeed, 
Those who differ over it are in doubt about it. They have no knowledge of it except of the following assumption, that they did not kill him for certain. Rather, Allah raised them to himself, and ever is Allah exalted, mighty, and wise. And so they have this belief within their, within their writing of the Quran that what happened is God just made it look like Jesus died on the cross. He didn't really die. You have this great act that happened in history that is overwhelmingly supported historically, and God just made it look like that he died. There's no evidence for this explanation. Um, there's no evidence that this is, this is what happened. But it creates a whole other quandary within this false religion. You have this question, why would God go and make it look like that this prophet died in this way that is so terrible, and this other person died in the stead of this prophet, so this prophet could be taken up. And now all of these people are following this religion now that was basically started because God decided to make it look like that Jesus died. This is, by the way, a heresy, one that was held by some people that claimed to be Christian. This is called the docetic heresy, this idea that God just made it look like that Jesus died, that he didn't really die. But that's not what the scriptures say. It is prophesied that the Messiah would die, that the Messiah would suffer, that he would be a suffering servant on behalf of his people. Psalm 22, I could read the whole thing right now, it overwhelmingly supports this idea. You have some of the greatest pictures of crucifixion laid out in Psalm 22. You have step-by-step things that are happening to Jesus that had been sung by Israel for centuries and centuries as they gathered together. Let's look at a few of those verses, 14 through 18 in Psalm 22. It says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments amongst them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Let's just look at a few pieces within this passage. My bones are out of joint. That's one of the consequences of being crucified, that your bones begin to pop out of joint as you're trying to pull yourself up to take a breath. And finally, you can't hold yourself anymore and things begin to fall apart. My heart's like wax. That's a consequence of the crucifixion as well, that it puts so much force upon and difficulty upon the heart that the heart began just to break open. There was even this, um, the pericardium around the heart would begin to fill up with water because the heart was not able to operate properly and displace water like it was supposed to. That's a consequence that happens to people um, as they're getting older sometimes as well. But that's something that was happening to him more rapidly as he was hanging there upon the cross, which they stab him. What comes out? You have blood and water that is coming up. His strength is dried up. His tongue sticks to his jaw. Remember, he was very thirsty at this time. He's laid down to death. Dogs encompass him. These are Gentiles that are encompassing him at this time. They pierced his hands and his feet. Need I say more? He was crucified. I can count all my bones. It was prophesied. They would not break any of his bones. They went up, remember, they went up to to break his legs. They were going to break his legs so that he would die faster and they wouldn't have to keep him there onto the Sabbath. And then he was dead. They didn't have to break his legs. None of his bones were broken. They divided my garments 
And for my clothing, they cast lots. You know, that's what they did. That's exactly what happened. This is speaking of the Messiah who was to come, the one who would be a priest, the one who would be a prophet, right? The one who would be a king, the one who would be a suffering servant on behalf of his people. Isaiah 53 and verse 3, again, Isaiah 52 through the latter end, all the way through 53, another fantastic passage that we could spend a bunch of time walking through all the many ways. And what I just did with those few verses in Psalm 22, we could do that all the way through Psalm 52 and 53, pointing out the ways in which it points to Christ. But let's look at just a few of these, a few of these prophecies that were given about the Messiah who would be a suffering servant. Isaiah 53 and 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with with grief, and the one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That is exactly what happened. His friends were running away from him. His supporters were running away from him. Looks down at verse 9 in Isaiah 53, and they made his grave with the wicked And with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Is that not exactly what happened at the crucifixion? That he died there on the cross with criminals. Though he was not deceitful, though he had broken no law, they could bring nothing against him. But yet he was put forward because he was not fitting the caricature of what they believed a Messiah should be. Just like all these religions that I mentioned, but he was with a rich man in his death. And you know that prophecy came true. Joseph of Arimathea gave him his grave. Actually, he just let him borrow it for a couple days, and then he, he got it back. So he didn't need it very long. Great investment on Joseph's part, I believe. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Overwhelmingly, you see that happening at the Garden of Gethsemane. You see that happening as he is there upon the cross. You see that happening throughout his ministry. But you overwhelmingly see him doing this. He is that offering that is being put forward. He is the one that is taking upon the consequences of sin. He is dying as a propitiation for the sins of his people, meaning that he is taking upon himself the wrath of God that it may not fall upon his people. That is what he is doing. That is how he is serving at this time. He is that greater high priest that was promised. He is the one that's coming in the line of Melchizedek. That says that in another place in the scriptures. Another reason why they thought the Messiah would be a priest. And he is making this offering to God. He is cleansing the people. All of these ceremonies Everything in the ceremonial law is pointing to what he would do and how he would live. And we see aspects of the resurrection being pointed to, the fruits of his work being pointed to, um, but 
the, the reality that his death is going to result in, in his offspring living. But we see even, I want to emphasize this in Psalm 22, I think we see the resurrection here as well in 19 through 22 in Psalm 22. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. He would be resurrected in power, in glory, to lead and to defend his people as one who was innocent of the charges they brought before him, one who took upon himself the consequences, which is why the church makes this declaration about Jesus, as Peter does in Luke 9 and verse 20. He said, to him, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, is it not Peter so oftentimes that is the mouthpiece of the apostles? It is Peter who oftentimes, yes, he does stick his foot in his mouth at times, but he is a bold man who speaks. You, there's no question of, of where Peter's heart is when he is talking. Peter answered, the Christ of God. All of this is entailed in this profession. This is the profession of the true church. The real church professes him as the Christ of God, this one who is prophet, priest, and king, seeing him rightly as this suffering servant who laid down his life for the many. And why? Why was this necessary? Why did he have to come forward in this way? Why did he need to be a prophet? We know that we are ignorant. Why did he have to be a priest? Because we are defiled. Why did he have to be a king? Because we are weak and helpless. Those are our problems. But he had to come forward and take upon himself the consequences for sin because of our situation. Because we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We are unable to stand before the Lord. We stand before the Lord in our sin. It is to our demise. It is to our destruction. Paul points out man's state in Romans chapter 3 in verses 10 through 12. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He lives, leaves no opportunity for you to sneak anyone in there. What about my great aunt? No, not one. Not even that great aunt. The one that you visited, that you loved, that took care of you, that your father wasn't around, but she was there to look after you. Even she is not good in and of herself. Even she is born dead in her trespasses and sins. That is why Christ needed to come because of the consequences of sin coming into the world through Adam, through the one who was our federal head Romans 5 and verse 12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. We have two serious problems there. The first is our federal head, Adam, sinned, and so we're born into this world 
that is cursed. We ourselves are affected by his sin. We're born sinners, which is what Paul's saying in Romans 3 there. None is righteous, no, not one. Why? Because of what Adam did. Because of the consequences of Adam's sin. And you not only have the guilt of Adam's sin upon yourself, you also have the actual sin that you commit willfully and intentionally in the desires of your heart, flowing outward into your actions, flowing into your thoughts. So you got two problems there. That's why Christ needed to come. To take upon the consequences of our sins and also to do what was not done rightly. Adam not only sinned, he also didn't keep the law completely. If he had kept the law completely, there would have been a reward for himself and for those who would come after him. When he sinned, there is a consequence for himself and those who come after him. So those who are in the line of Adam are born dead in their trespasses and sins, unable to do anything good. And he would say, but there's good people, there's good things that people do. By what standard? Yes, by a worldly standard, there's many good things. But by the righteous standard of God, there's nothing good that's not done in Christ. And we've got to see that. We, We must stop using a wrong standard to make judgments, to to make an understanding of how things are. We must look at God's standard. And so God's standard is perfect obedience to his law. And you say, but nobody's perfect. That's the point. That's why Jesus had to come. If you could have done it, why does the Son of God need to clothe himself in flesh and dwell amongst us? If you could have done it, if through any of these religions that I spoke of, if you could have done enough good deeds, if you could have said enough prayers, if you could have gone on enough missionary trips, if you could have gone and traveled here or there, done these religious actions, why would Jesus need to come? He wouldn't. You could have just done it on your own. The problem is that none is righteous. The problem is that none seek after God. We seek after a God made after our own image in our fallen state. That's what each of these religions do. And they all end up looking very similar. They all end up having a series of things that you need to do in order to solve your problem with God. They all end up giving you a series of religious activities that you need to do in order to give yourself peace with God. Christianity is the one religion that says you can't do it. On your best day, you're insufficient. The best person you can ever think of that has ever lived, they're insufficient because the standard is perfect holiness. And people will get offended over this. They will say, how can God expect you to do something you don't have the ability to do? Because God didn't change. He's God. God's requirement is the same. So when man fell... When Adam sinned and all who came after him were affected, it didn't change who God was. God continued to be who he was. The same expectation was there, but God made a means whereby man can be saved. And that's where I want to land this. Let's look at Romans 5, and I'm going to start in 15 and read through the rest of this passage because it unpacks what Jesus accomplished. It says this, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the one man's trespass, that's talking about Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, 
death reign through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So we have this contrast happening here. Those who are in Adam are dead, are falling. But those who are in Christ are reigning, have life. Therefore, as the one man's trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. Meaning this, not that all men fell in Adam and all men are alive in Christ. You must understand what the all means. Those who are in Adam are born dead. They all died. Those who are in Christ all live. So although all of us are in Adam... When we are born into this world, only some of us are in Christ. And those who are in Christ have a new federal head. They have one who is serving before them, Christ Jesus. One who has been the victor on their part. One who has defeated the enemy of sin and death on their part. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where there is no sin, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Understand what Jesus did. Jesus did two things, and there are two things that you need, dear friend. Jesus took upon himself the consequences of sin, so whoever trusts on him will not receive the wrath of God upon themselves. He will free them of that because he has taken it upon himself. And as one who is fully God and fully man, he was able to do that. And he additionally, he didn't just wipe the slate clean and let you start over so that you're like Adam and Eve. No, he not only took the wrath of God for the guilt of Adam and for the sins that you commit, he also kept the law in every respect so that those who trust in him receive the rewards of righteous living, receive the rewards of perfect obedience, the law of God. That's why you're called children of God if you are in fact in Christ Jesus. You have been adopted. That is the greatness, the greatness of what Christ has given to you. Do you see the greatness and the beauty there that you have as much right to be in the new Jerusalem, you have as much right to be in heaven as Jesus does. And you say, how can you say that? Because you're standing upon his righteousness and there's no other means whereby you can have access to that righteousness. There's no other means whereby you can have entrance into heaven. You can have entrance into glory. Not by any works of your own, not by any sacrifice of your own, not through your own religious actions, but by trusting in Christ alone. What do you say? The world makes their profession of Christ. You see it in the various religions in the world. They make their profession of Christ. They speak on who they believe Christ is. They seek to claim Christ for themselves. The church claims that Christ is the the Messiah of God, the Christ of God. Who do you say that he is? Who is he to you? It doesn't matter what your parents believe. It doesn't matter what your grandfather did if your grandfather was a pastor. It doesn't matter what your mom did. You will stand before the Lord. Each and every one of you. All of us will stand before the Lord. And you will stand before the Lord either in your own righteousness 
or you'll stand upon before the Lord in the righteousness provided by Christ Jesus. My prayer is that you stand before the Lord in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Make such provision, dear friends, while there is time.